A few weeks ago, I turned 41. I celebrated my birthday quietly, surrounded by several hundred scholars from around the world who study Eastern Europe and Eurasia. They hadn't assembled in my honor, though. We'd all come to Philadelphia for the annual conference staged by the Association of Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies, or ACES. Some listeners of this show will know that I once dipped my toes in academia, studying in a doctoral program at UC Berkeley to become a professional historian. That didn't work out, clearly, but I did attend my first ACES conference back in those years, when it was still called AAAS. All of which is to say that I've experienced a few of these. And I can tell you that the field is a very different beast today than it was when a fluffier Dmitry Medvedev occupied the Kremlin, before Russia had even invaded the Republic of Georgia, to say nothing of Ukraine. The theme of this year's conference was decolonization, and many of the panels were devoted to research and conversations about overturning the old ways of studying and talking about the region, with everything overshadowed, of course, by Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I didn't attend last year's conference, but the Ukraine war dominated there too, I'm told. And while Russia's aggressive turn in the last decade has forced a rethinking of how scholars talk about the field. The realities of travel warnings, insurance coverage, even criminal liability now, and disappearing data present immediate obstacles to old research methods. Studying Russia after 2022 just ain't the same, and scholars are adapting their work to deal with this new environment. That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Providence. <laughs> Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa in English. Back after a couple of episodes hosted by my colleagues. Hopefully you enjoy their work because there's more coming from the team in the near future. This week's show is devoted to the subject of studying Russia and conditions of growing non-transparency, which happens to be the title of a working paper published in October that is this episode's focus. The paper is co-authored by Dmitry Kakorin, Dmitry Gorsky, Elizaveta Zubiuk, and Tatyana Katyalnikova. For this week's show, I spoke to the second Dmitry on that list, Dmitry Gorsky, a researcher at the Ideas for Russia program organized by the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom. He's a faculty member at Charles University and a scholar at the Prague-based Institute for International Relations. Gorsky and his co-authors write about distortions of knowledge production in Russia and knowledge production about Russia, exploring how experts are adapting to less reliable data and disruptions in international cooperation. There's a paradox in Russia's studies today, the country has become more prominent in the news agenda and simultaneously less transparent for observers, thanks to the invasion of Ukraine, Western sanctions, isolation, and the intensification of propaganda. As you'll learn in a few minutes, many scholars, journalists, and analysts are tackling this challenge admirably by innovating new approaches in their work. But there have been some bumps in the road, too. Earlier this year in September, journalists at Politico revealed that the EU has often relied on flimsy, slipshod evidence when designing sanctions that are meant to pressure people close to Putin. This has exposed the bloc to legal challenges from oligarchs and others with lots of experience navigating Europe's courts. For example, the EU used machine-translated articles from Russian and Ukrainian sources of varying credibility, including a Kremlin-linked lifestyle magazine, several blogs, and even Wikipedia articles. Sloppy work like this raises questions about the state of Russia expertise in the West. 
I mean, Russia was coming back into the public attention even before February 2022. In terms of like the heightened awareness and the heightened heightened interest, let's say, maybe not awareness, heightened interest in Russia, do you feel like this is a good moment for Russia studies because of that heightened interest? Or do you feel like this is a bad moment because of all the, the crackdown in Russia and the fact that it's hard to produce knowledge, hard hard to get reliable information? Like just sort of like very generally, are you feeling good about the field? Or are you feeling bad about the field? Of course, like it's super important for like politicians. We need uh, sanctions to be implemented based on the data rather than on emotions. And Russia is quite unpredictable. And we want to predict the next steps. We want to understand how society works. So, and it still has some like weight, uh, like Russian economy as Russia's major supplier of weapons or oil or natural gas or like diamonds, for example. So of course it affects the field, but uh, one of the greatest uh, things we understand that like most disappointing things we understand that there is not uh, such huge demand to study the country uh like for politicians for example they don't really need that like data-based approach to make some decisions uh yes sometimes they only care for like votes and so on so i would say now it's harder to understand what's going on in russia and we've been expecting that there is this like uh, increasing demand and people want to study it more. But what we see like after 2014, uh, like from Europe or from United States, people don't really understand what's going on. They just like projecting and uh, like some idea that they have what they understand Russia is. Why do you and your co-authors believe that it is important to study Russia now? That's a really good question, but uh, you need to answer like from different point of view, from different actors who've been involved in uh, studying Russia. So there is like one answer for media. We could see like a huge demand from media and a lot of like newspapers in different languages uh, writing about uh, Russia and uh, they all need some expertise how and what to write about Russia. Scholars, of course, uh, and like European based and American based uh, uh, scholars and uh, Russian based scholars. Uh, that's another field and uh, that field was affected uh, huge and uh, for them, uh, why it's important. I guess for scholars, it's not that uh, interesting question because you could study whatever you want. Like uh, some of our like respondents, experts we've been talking about during the report, now comparing Russia with uh, Russia studies with ancient languages. So you could study them and uh, you don't need like a super motivation to do this. It's just interesting for you. And uh, like now, we need to find some like extra motivation and Russian studies not to become these like ancient languages. What about like comparing contemporary Russian studies to Soviet studies in the West when the Soviet Union still existed? Because I know that it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, well, it's closing down. There's sort of a new iron curtain of sorts. This is like the Soviet days, like we're all going to have to be Sovietologists again. Are there major lessons to take from the Soviet period or is your attitude, we could do better? Yeah, I guess like there are two answers. So one, of course, like uh, during the Soviet period, we had like some strategies and uh, these like approaches, how to study autocracy is super important. And that's where we could learn some strategies. But from like point of view of like just discussion, that's a real danger to the field because like when people don't study an object well, they uh, tend to use very simplified schemes and uh, analogies. So they start thinking, for example, that Russia is just like the Soviet Union and they make these simplifications and uh, sometimes it's also like a very personal question and uh, there is like wishful thinking and uh, they tend to see what they wish to see at the reality 
and uh, another problem that like activism mixing into the analysis and uh, like less people studying Russia in like in a good way in like a scientific way and uh, those people who still in the field they like uh, tend to simplify maybe things and that's a problem so they just mirroring for example Soviet Union legacy to Russia that's not really how it works in the paper you, you pointed out that you point out that Russia was actually a kind of advantageous, a good place to, to do social science research on autocracy until recently. Um, that you know it was sort of paradoxically open to the study of like an authoritarian society, and either there, there was robust specialization and there was international integration of scholars and so on. And you you mentioned some of the things I thought were probably most people would just would guess or would know off the top of their head, like you have universities, obviously, so, you know, straightforward scholars, you have um, opinion polling, obviously, there's a lot of opinion polling that's that's come out of Russia, there's civil society, you know, these are these groups that are doing research memorial over the info, like you know, publishing stats and, and um, information about you know, like policing, that sort of thing. Public administrative data, the state was releasing information that most people trusted for the most part. And even in the report, you still mentioned that uh, the central bank's numbers are still widely, widely trusted. And you highlight the role of analytics and market research. And this is the one, this, this is kind of the group that stood out to me as, as interesting. I was wondering if you could say more about how the demands of, of like the business community and um, investors were driving this sort of rigorous research. Because I think at one point in the paper, you say something like, you know, it's, these were the sort of like the most professional people. So what, what can you say about the, the culture of uh, the analytics and mar market research and what's happened to it in the last couple of years? That's really the part, uh, mostly like people who are interested in Russia missing this like business related uh, uh, firms that were studying Russia, like consulting firms, top three and the top four in audit and also in West banking because they risk their money. They really need to understand what's going on. And uh, after the full scale invasion started, Mostly they closed their offices in Russia. There are some firms that now are like uh, named in Russian version. And uh, But mostly they just relocated all the people who've been working. So that really affects uh, the field. Because if we want to understand something, we need like different actors to work on this. So business is one of the that uh, like type of people who have been doing this great research. And now they're not doing this. The big three consulting agencies that perform this work for large corporations, public organizations, and state entities are McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. The big four financial auditing services and accounting organizations are KPMG, Ernst & Young, Deloitte, I'm not sure I'm saying that one right, but I think it's Deloitte, Deloitte, and PricewaterCooper. Before the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, these firms sold their services in Russia to state-owned companies and institutions. For example, PricewaterCooper's Russian clients included Sberbank, Gazprom, and Russia's own central bank. After the full-scale war began, these firms started withdrawing from the Russian market. But the Russian divisions basically remained, now separated and operating under new brand names. For example, McKinsey's managing partners in Russia bought the Russian business, and it's now called Yakov & Partners. Ernst & Young's Russian division is now B1, PricewaterCoopers' Russian business is called Trust Technologies, and so on. That's exactly the reason why Central Bank provides their numbers, for example, because they care about this like investment to Russia. And still, if you would see what Nebulina says, I guess like even like a few days ago, she said that we need to provide numbers. We need to provide like official data because we need some uh, investment. So even government interested in this. So that's a huge effect that now happens. The head of Russia's Central Bank, Elvira Nabiulina, 
has cautioned for the past year that the country needs to restore transparency to its economic reporting, albeit with certain exceptions, to bring back securities investors. Politico named Nabiulina Europe's number one disruptor in 2023 for acting as the top technocrat, keeping Putin's war machine humming. But the long-term consequences of Russia's opaque wartime economic reporting are still unclear. Earlier this month, Nabiulina repeated this warning at an economic forum organized by VTB Bank. President Putin attended the forum, too. Russia's wartime campaign to classify state data began in earnest last year after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Officials have stopped publishing records that journalists and analysts have used to triangulate information about Russia's losses in the war. For example, in September 2023, Russia's social funds stopped releasing data from the Federal Register of Disabled People, which reporters had used to estimate the number of men wounded fighting in Ukraine. As Dmitry and I already discussed, the Russian government has labored to conceal what it spends on the war in Ukraine. The Kremlin has also allowed various institutions, from the parliament and the federal ministries to other government agencies, to withhold information about their revenue until the end of the special military operation. At the same time, government officials have been eager to present Russia's economic output as booming. At that forum organized by VTB, Putin declared triumphantly that the country's GDP grew by 5.5% in the third quarter of 2023, the fastest rate it's grown in decades. Annual GDP growth will be at least 3.5%, Putin said, far outpacing the prognosis earlier this year from both the central bank and the finance ministry. Let them try now to say that Russia is just a gas station masquerading as a country, Putin told his audience. What can you say about government numbers otherwise? Because while, while in your paper you point out that the central bank's numbers are still widely, widely trusted, a lot of your respondents seem to have lost faith in, like the, in, in most of the other statistics and government uh, public data. What can you say about quality of information there? The problem that uh, around 20 ministries and state agencies now are like uh, partially restricted data disclosure. There is a law that allows uh, them to do so. And uh, that's like one of the problems. So there was some data and now for some ministries, you just cannot get it. And also like uh, after the full scale invasion, there is like another problem. The people don't trust the data that they provide. And uh, People like usually reference to the article by Luis Martinez from Chicago University that uh, he shows that it's typical to autocracies to overestimate their GDP level. So there are some like different ministries, of course, provide different data and there are some that we trust more. For example, yeah, experts said that central bank you could trust uh, more and some other ministries, like one of the worst in terms of data, for example, it's Ministry of Health. And we don't know how many people have HIV, for example, in uh, Russia. There are also like huge problems with like data related to ecology. And we don't know like how much waste we have in Russia. But I guess it's not that bad because uh, experts normally understand what data you could trust and what, what data you cannot trust. And also there are some ways how to search for deleted data and uh, how to triangulate this data. So that's, uh, I guess, for the moment, not the biggest problem. In July 2023, Medusa and Mediazona published a joint investigation about the Russian army's losses in the first year and a half of fighting in Ukraine. The report concluded that roughly 47,000 men were killed between February 2022 and May 2023. In parallel, Mediazona has been working with the BBC and a team of volunteers to track public records of Russian soldiers killed in the war. Using those more limited data, journalists had counted more than 38,000 soldiers killed in Ukraine as of December 1st. 
Can you say a little bit more about triangulation? Because a lot of the a lot of this this working paper is devoted to sort of suggesting or describing kind of emerging tricks of the trade when it comes to working in this climate of sort of degraded data reliability. You suggest that researchers can turn to foreign statistics and sort of compare them to what Russia is claiming. You can use leaked data, although there's some ethical qualms there. For example, you mentioned that Medusa and Mediazona put out this this uh, report where they were trying basically to estimate the number of soldiers killed in Ukraine by studying probate registry records. And so it's like, it's kind of like trying to be a detective and, and look for, for indirect indications of the thing you actually want to study because there's not direct, you know, information available. For listeners who heard me just say that and aren't quite sure what that means, like, what exactly are you talking about? Yeah, so uh, now you need to find like some creative ways how to access data. And with this triangulation, the most important thing that we need like to check all the data that we get. If you have like different data sources and they show mostly the same things, then we would uh, like predict that uh, they predict something really good. And uh, there are ways to access this like deleted data from uh, Russian ministries. And uh, we still have some web archives uh, that's uh, that still have some data. There is also opportunity to do IP searching and uh, sometimes just governments miss to delete something in the code and you could see there is also a third thing you could do. You could search data in like non-obvious places. For example, like not that many people know that uh, Russian ministries normally have some uh, departmental institutes. In Russian, it's called Vyadomstvene Institute, and they produce some analysis. Like no one knows uh, what is the quality of the analysis, but sometimes you could see uh, data there and you could use it. Also, like we are using data from other countries. So if you want to see like the volume of Russian oil exports to India, for example, you could see uh, like what India provides as importing numbers. So that's another way. For the leaked data, I would say people have been using it before. Like there is, there are beautiful articles by Maxim Mironov and Ekaterina Zhuravska on corruption. And uh, there are a lot of questions of ethics working with leaked data and uh, then like the main principle is always not to do any harm but uh, there is more leaked data and uh, people using it and if there are like some different data sources they could uh, check this data it works. Mironov and Zhurovskaya used a database of banking transactions focusing on shell companies to assess the extent of corruption in government procurement contracts. They divided the firms in their banking data into those paying taxes and those evading taxes. And then they identified payments to the latter group, to the companies involved in UBNAL, in taking cash off the books. The researchers learned that the large firms awarded government contracts increased their payments to the shell companies ahead of local elections. They found no such pattern with the firms that didn't win government contracts. In other words, the evidence suggests that the government contracts were laundered through shell companies and converted to cash during election seasons, presumably for campaigning politicians. There are also like a lot of Texas data methods now people parsing like some telegram channels and they do this analysis for example you could see how channels are connected you could see who reposts uh, each other and you could make these like beautiful uh, graphs and you could analyze for example how propaganda works so propaganda studies uh, really evolves and what you could also use now is uh, like you could study diasporas in Russia, you could see like why people moved uh, out of the country and it could uh, 
it's not like Russian society. It's, it doesn't represent society, but it's part of the society and it's important and it's like more easily accessible now. Of course, scholars do find ways to study the millions of people who still live in Russia. For example, sociologist Anna Kuleshova, who co-founded a group called Social Researchers Across Borders, works mainly through interviews. Russians who oppose the war in Ukraine have told her that they no longer feel at home in their own country. Some respondents say they've developed new personal and family habits since February 2022. Parents have told Kuleshova that they now teach their children not to talk to strangers or to the police, especially about politics. And adults also say they're careful in public not to use their smartphones to read the websites of banned independent news outlets like Medusa. You write in the, in the paper that armchair experts often rely solely on the news agenda instead of rigorous analysis of facts and details. And this leads, you say, to a mix of propagandist and counter-propagandist statements, which itself can be considered a form of, of propaganda. And I wonder, what kind of media diet do you recommend or, or believe in when it comes to Russia scholars or journalists working on Russia who you know want to avoid propaganda? Because I've had this experience, because my media diet or diet of reading is probably heavier on the news or the news agenda than it is on scholarly articles. And so on one hand, you talk to scholars and you find like, oh, they have a really deep understanding of some of these like big questions. But then when it comes to applying it to anything actually happening, it's like, oh, well, you know, they haven't been reading the news. They don't know about that. And it's like, okay, well. And so I wonder, in your mind, is there like a good balance here? Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, always a question of time. So scientists have like two years to publish like an article. And uh, of course, for media and for experts that need to, for politicians, for example, who need to make some actions now, that's uh, not... Uh, way uh, like they cannot wait two years i would say that people should be really careful when they see some like predictions when things would happen for example we all know like people want to know when putin will die and if you see something like this in one week in two days or two days before that's crazy and uh, that's important to understand that a lot of things that are going on now in russia going in like super different environment and never we met such conditions. That's one of the questions is the data that we could trust and we could use. And another question is models that we use to apply for these uh, circumstances. And for example, like one of the smartest uh, economists, when they were asked, like, could you predict how soon Russian economy will die because of the sanctions, like uh, two months after the full-scale invasion started, they made some predictions it will survive like three months and then it will be died. And uh, it's also like some uh, wishful thinking and uh, it just um, explains that we don't understand how sanctions works. And that's the first case when we could see it in reality and we need to learn a lot of things. So you really need to be careful with these predictions and uh, you need to understand all the restrictions. Since the start of the full-scale war in Ukraine, economists have repeatedly prophesized the collapse of Russia's financial institutions. Within a month of the invasion, Russia was the most sanctioned country on the planet. And yet here we are. UCLA professor Alieg Itzoki recently told Medusa that the situation in Russia is something remarkable and without good historical analogies. Economists who predicted doom and gloom expected a banking crisis in Russia that would turn a recession into a depression. But the Russian authorities resorted to unprecedented measures to maintain the country's supply of foreign currency and prevent a run on the banks. Revenue from exports, namely oil and gas, which sanctions barely touched at the war's outset, also helped keep the economy afloat. Another thing you write about that I think this comes up throughout the, the paper is that there have been distortions of knowledge production in Russia and 
in knowledge production about Russia. And some of the examples you cite are the uncertainty of future access to data incentivizes some scholars to basically delay or postpone the publication of their research. So the information that the public is getting is is affected by you know, fears of, of limiting of individual scholars worried about losing access to future stuff, so they're going to hold it for now. And this is something, I guess, you know, journalists will often hold a story till they think it's really ready, even if it's exclusive. But there's also that always that pressure to do it quickly, as, to get it out as quickly as possible, not necessarily because you're worried about losing access, because you want to be first. And so there's like pressures in that regard, too. You talk about the international scientific sphere fragmenting because Russian scholars are now being incentivized to publish domestically and not not go abroad. So that's kind of, that's leading to further fragmentation. And I wonder what reliable research institutions and sources of knowledge production in Russia still exist. I mean, we've, I've mentioned that, that there still seems to be confidence in the central bank's information. So I suppose that's, that's a sort of research institution of sorts that's still reliable. But like, what else, what else endures? Inside Russia, still like all the universities, uh, we uh, claimed before uh, it's like more independent and uh, like international universities it's like higher school of economics and new economic school and european universities of course they lost like a lot of scholars but still they have some connections to the scholars who are abroad with like russian scholars who moved out of the country just some additional context here the higher school of economics a.k.a. Vyshka, has operated for more than 30 years and is, or was, considered Russia's most liberal university, collaborating with the country's best scholars and educators. The school's reputation as a bastion of free thought has rapidly eroded, however. Even before February 2022, administrators made news on multiple occasions for firing faculty in retaliation for political statements and for restricting the freedoms of the student media. But you you also write that some of the the pressure on scholars to basically or the fear of censorship or repercussions for writing about something too political is leading some scholars to pursue like more technocratic or low key issues of of research stuff that might not be as interesting I guess to the international audience which as you said is mainly just asking when Putin will die. <laughs> so in that regard, would you say that there's still rigorous social scientific work on more technocratic stuff and that the outsiders can can kind of look for that and try to like decide where the big where there there's like big information hidden in that or do they just have to settle for for lower key stuff or or what's the strategy there for for foreigners yeah i guess uh, now we cannot ask people to study like uh, super uh, marginal topics we are all interested in for example like do you support uh, the war or not so that's quite dangerous that's why we need to search for these like low key issues and uh, we need to avoid suspicions of uh, disloyalty inside of the country but still these questions for example if you estimate birth rates in russia or real estate transactions uh, like whether people would have a child uh, are they willing to buy an apartment it shows like a lot about russian society that's uh, the only way we have uh, like kept, kept to have some answers and to keep our respondents safe but even with uh, like posters and public opinion surveys now that's a great uh, time when we have like beautiful strategies evolved like there was like simple ways before now we have some creative strategies so we're giving like opportunity not to respond when we're asking whether you uh, like support uh, the, the war or not we have like uh, we understand that it's not a binary question whether you support or not and uh, we're asking now what could you sacrifice and uh, be asking, like, what does it mean to support? 
So that's uh, another idea. And we like uh, divide people into the groups, like they score support that people are against and so on. Yeah, we're asking smart questions, not direct questions. For example, one of the beautiful uh, is not asking whether you like the president or not, but asking uh, if like tomorrow would be elections, do you want the prime minister to be a 70 year old guy or not? And people like mostly saying that they won't be happy to see such an old guy to be president or prime minister. So yeah, we still have some ways to do and topics to cover all of them now, like less marginal, but uh, you need to be smarter. You need to have some creative strategies. If like some undergraduate young student came to you tomorrow and said, Dimitri, I'm thinking of pursuing a career as a, as a scholar of Russia. Is that a good move? I guess the like question I'm really trying to ask is like, what's your advice to aspiring Russia scholars? But let's imagine this scenario where someone does come to you, you know, young in their career, young in their in their in their studies, and they have the opportunity to sort of go in different directions. What is your advice to people in that situation? I would say that you all need to understand like the restrictions we have now, and uh, uh, I'd say. It's now like interesting way we need to find the strategies. We need to access real like autocracy. Like we need to, to use all the methods that was used before with other countries. So Russia is not the only case where we have like some uh, huge data related problems and so on. Uh, you need to cover like topics, less marginal topics as we just discussed. You need to decenter Russia. Russia could be like one of the cases if you're doing your research. Uh, you need to. Uh, like compare it with other countries from the region. It's also like, it's quite a good recommendation. And that's how you will get maybe some funding to do PhD. And there are a lot of like collaborations. We talked slightly about this, a collaboration between Yazona Medusa and Dmitry Kopak. So uh, the researcher from University of Heidelberg. So you could also access uh, some data journalists and you could talk with them and uh, they have some data they are ready to like share and you could do some research together you could publish it in media and then you will proceed to uh, your like research paper that would be published in like two years maybe so that's also something that uh, evolving now and is beautiful thanks for tuning in folks this has been the naked pravda a podcast from medusa in english remember that undesirable status back in russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.